South Africa has never needed black consciousness more than it does today. Hmm. Now, I say every time when we talk about the fires, yeah. that there will be more fires. Hmm. And there were. And we see them now. And there will be more fires. There is a more devastating fire coming. So literally, Lilian Goyi there turns in her grave. Look at this street, Lilian Goyi. Look at the CBD. Look at the inner city. Are these conditions under which human beings mm. in a country run by a government of people who fought a liberation struggle, are these the conditions under which they should be living? Mm. Because the ANC has become one of the biggest crises facing South Africa today. The Seaswim of Welsh Experience Podcast. Gogo, we commemorate the passing of Steve Biko this month, the month of September. He passed away on the 12th of September. Mm. How do you believe we should reflect on the life and legacy of Steve Biko in this moment that we are in in South African history? Let, let, let me start here. When Steve Biko died in 1977, I was 14 years old. And I was going through what I call an accelerated period of political education. Because in June 1976, on the 16th of June, when we saw the thousands of students marching, in terms of where we were, Kwanzikana Primary School, marching from the direction of what was called Orlando North, Mm. Our teacher said something terrible is going to happen. You must go home immediately. So there I am running home, running because there is something that is burning my, my nose, something I've never experienced before. And I'm hearing the sounds of what to me as a child then were guns. Of course, now we know those are tear gas canisters. Mm. And the burning in my nose was tear gas. What is the first thing I do when I get home? I go under my bed, uh, my bed where, 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 where the, the ball is. I take out my ball under the bed. I go outside to play with my friends. The next thing, my mother keeps on coming to report to us because she was on the scene that children, school children, are being killed by the boys. Mm. They are fighting back. So, so we, we get a running commentary from her because she keeps on moving from the scene of, of the rioting mm. and the killing of, of her children around what is now Hector Peterson um, Memorial to tell us what was happening. And as she tells us what is happening, 
something in me starts to change. I realize something, something, I can't give it a name, but something is changing. And at one o'clock, we listen to the news. We were compelled to listen to the news uh, at home at 7 a.m., yeah. 1 p.m., and 7 p.m. on Springbok Radio. <laughs> so we listen to the news at 1 p.m. on Springbok Radio, and Springbok Radio is reporting in the news what is happening uh, in Soweto. Mm. Now, the reason I'm telling this story, I'm trying to illustrate how rapid my political development was between June 1976 yeah. and September 1977. Hmm. Because, as was the case every day, on this morning in uh, September 1977, I go to the shops to buy the world newspaper because it was my task, daily task, to buy the, the world newspaper for my parents. Mm. Mm. So I go to the shops, I buy the world. As was the case every day, I, I give it to my mother or to my father, whoever was closer, mm. and go back to my bedroom or go to the kitchen to make myself breakfast mm. before I go to school. After handing over the world to my mother, I hear my mother saying, Dali, Bambulele. Hmm. They have killed him. My father, who was still taking a bath, replies, Ubani, hmm. who? My mother says, Ubiko. I had never heard the name before. Hmm. That's the first time I hear the name Ubiko. Hmm. When my mother says, Dali, Bambulele, and my father says, Ubani, and my mother says, Obiko. Mm. That is the first time I hear of this name and this man, Steve Biko. Mm. Because after that, my parents tell us the story of this man who has been killed and why he has been killed. Mm. After that, my political education about apartheid South Africa was accelerated. Mm. Mm. Because by the end of 1977, I'm a fully-fledged activist mm. who is expelled from school. And that is how I end up going to school in Umlaz, as well as to Guavi, mm. and living in Lamonville, because I'd been expelled mm. in September 1977 um, from school, you know. Mm. So, I might have said to you before that my primary teachers when it comes to South African politics and political history were my parents, my mom and dad. And that morning when my mother says, Bambulele, mm. my father saying, Ubani, my mother saying, Ubiko, was another chapter in my education about apartheid South Africa. Mm. Now, of course, as a 14-year-old, as I said, I don't know this, who this man was until my parents tell us the story. I don't know what black consciousness is. 
Now, fast forward to yeah. almost 10 years later, mm. I'm sitting in a cell with your father, mm. uh, people like Paul Mashatile, Imas Masondo, and others. Mm. Um, and we take a decision that we're going to have political education classes. And the first one was given to me. I was to talk about black consciousness. Hmm. That was a very short uh, lesson <laughs> or lecture. <laughs> because I do my thing. Hmm. I talk about Steve Biko, I talk about black consciousness. The first person who responds, now remember, this is a cell full of chatterists. Mm, mm. And at that time, we're in the middle of the 1985 state of emergency. Mm. There are battles going on between us, the so-called chatterists, yeah. who were attached to the UDF and the ANC. Sure. And what we call Amazimzi, members of the Black Consciousness Movement. Mm. And people are dying. Uh, in this battle between the Chataris and the Mazimze. Mm. So it is in this context that I deliver this lesson in jail uh, to this group of Chataris. Mm. And I say this was a very short lesson because the first person who responds says, we must not exaggerate the meaning of Steve Biko. Mm. We must not exaggerate black consciousness. What was Steve Biko? What was Black Consciousness? A group of people uh, who were looking after gardens and sewing shirts and stuff like that. And that was the end. <laughs> that was the end. No discussion. Hmm. You know? And of course, that was a functioning part of where we were mm. at that time in the country, in the middle of this state of emergence, mm. in mm. this battle between the Chatteris and Black consciousness. I, in future, thereafter, would be accused in the ANC of being more black consciousness than ANC. Hmm. I, I suppose that is true. But back to your question about how we should remember Biko. Hmm. You know, last night, I spent almost the whole night thinking about him and thinking about black consciousness. Hmm. And one of the things which struck me is that I do not know his clan names. Mm. Mm. And it struck me because I thought, you cannot talk about Stibiko unless you recognize the obvious. He is no more. The man of flesh and blood is no more. So when I talk about Steve Biko today, I'm talking about spirit. He is spirit. And when I talk about him or talk to him, I must recognize the fact that because he is spirit, I must connect with him with respect. Mm. And one of the ways I do that is to call him by his clan names. As, as I talk to you right now, I'm mm. ashamed to say I still don't know mm. what, his, what his clan names are. Mm. And I therefore seek his forgiveness for that. But after this conversation, I will correct that. Mm. I will do my research and find out so that when we talk to him as spirit, 
we talk to him properly mm. and with respect. The respect that you must accord an ancestor. Mm. You cannot separate Steve Biko from black consciousness. Now, of course, people make the mistake of thinking before Steve Biko, there was no black consciousness. There was black consciousness all over the world. One of the reasons you have a struggle for freedom in Haiti, which led to the foundation of the first black republic, is precisely that, black consciousness. They may not have called it black consciousness, but it is black consciousness that propels them to engage in this struggle for freedom. Mm. Black people all over the world have engaged in struggles because they are propelled by a sense of black consciousness, even if it is not defined politically mm. or in philosophical terms or in intellectual terms, they are propelled by this sense of black consciousness which predates Steve Biko and black consciousness as he talked about it and taught about it. Mm -hmm. But you cannot separate Steve Biko from black consciousness, at least black consciousness as it came into being in South Africa. But I talk about Steve Biko as an ancestor, a spirit deliberately. Because we must talk about consciousness. If there can be black consciousness, it follows there are other kinds of consciousness. Whether it's black consciousness or another kind of consciousness, it is a subset of consciousness. For instance, nature is conscious. Nature is a consciousness. The universe, the multiverse are conscious. They have a consciousness. So there you have two kinds of consciousness. Black consciousness is but one example of consciousness. In other ways, you can think of black consciousness or the consciousness of nature or the consciousness of the multiverse as drops of water in an ocean. So all these kinds of consciousness must be thought of as the drops that make up an ocean. So the ocean is the overall consciousness and therefore black consciousness would be part of this ocean of consciousness. Mm. If you think of it that way, you must ask the question whether black consciousness is enough. Mm. Now, in the process of answering that, you may go back to black consciousness in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, until now, and ask whether if, even then was black consciousness enough? Mm. Or should we ha not have conceived of black consciousness in the manner that I'm talking? That it is a drop in an ocean of consciousness. And therefore, 
does it help to separate this drop from the ocean? Mm. Now, I can safely say that for good reasons, by the way, I'm not being critical. Sure, sure. For good reasons, the drop had to be separated from the ocean. Mm. So this drop, black consciousness, had to be separated from the, from the ocean of consciousness so that it is applied for what was needed in South Africa at the time. Yeah. In fact, I might add, South Africa has never needed black consciousness more than it does today. Hmm. There has never been a time in South Africa when South Africa has been in need mm. of black consciousness than today. And therefore, even today, I would not be critical. I would critique, yes, but I would not be critical if we still today mm. separated this drop, black consciousness, from the ocean mm. of uh, consciousness. So there is an extent to which you must talk about black consciousness in two ways. In the way that Steve Biko spoke about as, as, as this drop, a drop that was necessary to be separated from the ocean so that it becomes part of how we prosecute the struggle for freedom. Mm. And it becomes the, 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 the philosophy, uh, a way of seeing and a way of being that propels us to act in the fight for freedom. Now, under Steve Biko and the Black Consciousness Movement, what is Black Consciousness? For me, Black Consciousness is a way of being in the world, mm. which is necessitated by certain conditions in the world. And South Africa as part of the world. Black consciousness takes a specific form. And therefore, this way of being in the world takes a specific form because of the specific conditions in which we find ourselves in South Africa, in which the black consciousness movement finds itself in South Africa in the 60s, in the 70s, 80s, until today. So even in South Africa, black consciousness becomes a way of being in the world. It is a response to the condition we find ourselves in. We are forced to be conscious of our blackness because our blackness is seen as something inferior. But more importantly, remember, we are forced to be conscious of our blackness because for centuries, as I keep on saying, whiteness attaches itself to a logic that says, and this is the logic we call coloniality, a logic that says that which is black and remember, Biko talks about the difference between a non-white and a black person. Mm. He said there's a different difference between the two. And he gives examples. That for, for instance, Bantustan leaders, he says, 
are not black, they are non-white. Mm. And, and someone who engages in the struggle against apartheid and apartheid colonialism is black. And someone who acts to promote and defend the interests of apartheid is not black, is non-white. Because for that person, one of the reasons why that person positions himself or herself in the manner that he or she does in relation to apartheid and in relation to the struggle for freedom, one of the reasons they position themselves that way is because for them, whiteness is the standard. Whiteness is the center of the universe. So in, in part, black consciousness is an attempt to move the center. Mm. And therefore, Biko talks about, for instance, the fact that the black police officer who fights to defend and maintain apartheid is not black, but is non-white. Now, for different reasons, I can argue that today there are still many people in this country who are not black, but who are non-white, because for them, whiteness is the standard towards which we, who are black, must aspire. So yes, we talk about black consciousness as a way of being in the world, but a way of being in the world because we are forced to be conscious of our blackness. Black consciousness is an intellectual enterprise. Black consciousness is a philosophy. And I, I always bemoan the fact that black consciousness succeeded more as a philosophy, but much less as a political program. Mm -hmm. One day we can talk about why that is. Mm. But we must credit Biko for answering his calling. Mm. Uh, because remember, we all are born with a purpose and a mission. And so when this man is born, he is called Stephen Bantu. Now, I have argued when I talk about the fact that words are not what they describe, that we name that, that which comes before the naming. Mm. We can say the same about black consciousness. The term black consciousness mm. names that which comes before the term itself. So black consciousness pre-exists mm. the, the existence of, of the name, mm. Mm. black um, Consciousness, but look at what we do before a child is born. The process is inverted. We name before that which is named mm. comes into existence. Mm. We name the child in the womb of the mother before the child is born. Of course, what has become common now is to name the child after the child is born. But I, I want to talk about Steve Biko and his naming. Mm in the sense of naming before the child is born. Yeah. What do you <laughs> and mean? I'm not even saying this is how it happened. Mm. Mm. And I'm not even saying he was named for the reasons that he was named. But I think that he was, the fact that he was named Stephen is not insignificant. Mm. 
those of you who grew up in the Christian tradition may know who Stephen was, one of the brothers of Jesus Christ. Mm. They may even know that he was an intellectual. And he, he, he challenged the status quo. He challenged the, 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 the religious authorities mm. of the time, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, mm. and so on, and questioned their philosophy because of what he and others had been taught by this Jesus Christ, mm. you know. But he's uncompromising, unbending in his beliefs. Mm. So mm. much so, he is stoned to death because he challenges the status quo. Mm. Steve Biko is stoned to death. Mm. But it is not stones that are used. He is tortured, he is beaten. Mm. At the end of the beating, he is brain damaged. He travels in the back of a van. And at the end of that journey, he is tied to the bars of a cell. He is stoned to death because he was uncompromising in his belief that apartheid was wrong. In his belief that one of the responses is black consciousness. And, and so this is what this man leaves us. Now, what he started remains incomplete, and that is why I say South Africa has never needed black consciousness more than it does mm. today. Can I ask you what you make of Bantu and that aspect of Stephen Bantu Biko's names? Yes. We may not have the time to do it today. Mm. <laughs> but I do think mm. we must continu continuously problematize black consciousness then. Mm and their consciousness now. In other mm. words, he himself, Biko, we need to problematize. Mm. What are the meaning of Biko then? What is the meaning of Biko today? Mm. We, we don't idealize him. We don't deify him. But this name, mm. Bandu, is, is, is critical. Mm. Now, Umuntu, human being. Mm. Abantu is a plural. So he is named Bantu mm. because, for instance, when I was growing up in Lamontville, when we talked about an African American, we would say Umuntu was a Melika mm. because. In, 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 in that manner of speaking, those who are black are Bantu. Mm. Mm. And that is why you have this concept of Ubuntu, which mm. I always caution mm. and say, Ubuntu is a human quality. It is not a quality that resides exclusively to a particular race mm. or to a particular continent or mm. people of a particular uh, continent. Mm. Uh, Ubuntu is a human quality. 
Now, whether this is what they do when they name, name him Bantu. Mm. But in what he does, he, he, he does it as if he knows that this name is his mission to turn that which is not human or is not regarded as human into something that is human. So black people, as I keep on saying, are regarded by the logic of whiteness and its coloniality as ontologically inferior. They are not human. You name him Bantu to reinforce the idea that those who are black, not only are they not regarded as human, mm. but they are not treated as human. And therefore the struggle for freedom as it pertains to black consciousness is the struggle to reclaim the humanity mm. of black people, which humanity they are, they are denied by colonialism, which humanity they are denied by apartheid. And there's something interesting about that mission of his, mm. to reclaim the humanity of those who are black. They are de dehumanized by those who lack humanity. Mm. Now, I am reminded of uh, Helen Susman. There was a massacre in Naledi, a tonight vigil once. The mm. mm. uh, day before, or the days leading up to a funeral um, <coughs> of an activist. Now, the police came, shot at people at that night vigil. As was almost always the case, Helen Sussman rushes to the scene. He, she is interviewed. And this is what she says about the apartheid police. They came disguised as human beings. Mm. Disguised as human beings because those who presided over apartheid were not human beings. When F.W. Declerc does not understand why apartheid had to be declared a crime against humanity, he denies that apartheid was a crime about, I mean, against humanity. He's doing two things. He, he, he denies it because apartheid was a crime against that which is not human. Mm. It was not a crime against human. So it makes no logical sense for him or to him to say apartheid was a crime against human against humanity because black people are not human. That, that's what the logic of coloniality teaches whiteness. But he denies that, this, which is the second thing. He denies that apartheid was a crime against humanity because he is not human. He and those who presided over apartheid mm. are not human. And it, 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 it takes me back to a very important Buddhist principle. Now, in Buddhism, nothing is distinguishable. There's no you, there's no me. Therefore, if I cause you pain, I cause pain to myself. 
the reason why this escapes those who preside over, over apartheid, like F.W. de Klerk. The reason why they cannot understand that by causing us pain, they were causing them pain, is because they're not human. And therefore, Steve Biko, whether this was the intention of his parents or not, is named Bantu because to be named Bantu is his mission. A mission that is about the reclamation of the humanity of blackness. Well, I think we can end the podcast there, Gogo. <laughs> Just a one-question podcast because, <laughs> wow, that's, that's so incredible and such a fascinating disquisition on Biko and his memory. Spread the fire, fam. This is just a quick reminder that if you'd like to buy one of my two books, The New Apartheid or Democracy and Delusion, which have both been bestsellers in South Africa, click the link below. If you live in South Africa, we can deliver it to your door. If you're outside of South Africa, you can get it on Kindle or on Amazon Audible. Okay, let's get back into it. In the, in the meantime, we messaged Ubutungosnatibiko, um, the mm. son of Steve Biko, and he was gracious enough to reply immediately. And he actually informed us of the clan names of um, Stephen Bantubiko, his Dugozgabiko, mm. and um, I'll read them. And then yes. Gogo, it seems as though this is mm. becoming a podcast about Biko and why not? He, so he has hijacked, just go, he's, he has yeah. hijacked the, the, <laughs> the podcast. Indeed, indeed. So... Thank you very much to Nkosnati Biko. Um, Kamela, the first. Nokwindla. Malabenze. Azi nyama ye nyamakazi. Chopo owa chapakela ekonya. Nangashe. Tamako. Makutulukun. Butzolo bentonga. So, this is what happens to me um, last night. Mm. Um, I had very little sleep last night because I was in conversation with, I won't say my ancestors, mm. their ancestors. Mm. And in conversation about the meaning of ego, meaning of black consciousness, because a spirit, mm. because it's an ancestor. Carmela was given to me. Mm. I've never known that it's Carmela. Mm. But last night, I sleep knowing that one of his clan names is Carmela. And the question is, who gives me that clan name? Is it him? Mm. Is it Abokoko Nabomkulu that he is with? his own ancestors, mm. or is it, as I said, not my ancestors, the ancestors, the ancestors of this land who give me Esisiduko, mm. we, we, we spoke about how the name mm. that is given to a child mm. sometimes announces the mission mm and purpose of that child. Now, 
one of Izidoko, your red bear, mm. is mm. Ubutsolo Bentonga. Mm. Intonga is a stick. And if it's all, it means it is sharp. Mm. One of its ends is sharp. Ubutsolo Bentonga, the sharp end of the stick. Mm. Mm. You can use a stick to hit mm. in a fight or to stab if it's all or it is sharp at the end. Mm. Mm. Was he not Ubuzolo Bendonga? Mm. Was he not a stick that was used to hit Amabulu? Mm. Was he not a stick that was used to stab Amabulu? Mm. Ubuzolo Bendonga. So even before he is born, his ancestors, and again I'll remind you, when I talk about ancestors, I'm talking about the historical fact mm. that there were human beings who were here before us. And then I'm talking about the fact that they are no longer here, they are spirit. Mm. The clan from which he comes is called Ubuds Olobendong. Mm. <clears throat> what that tells us to be Ubuzolo Bentonga was their mission, the mission of his ancestors before he became his own. Mm. All he was doing is to continue the mission of his clan. His clan's mission was to be Ubuzolo Bentonga, mm. the sharp end of the stick. Mm. And therefore he carries forward the purpose and mission of his ancestors. Mm. So in a way you can look at the tool he uses, black consciousness, as a tool that is handed down to him mm. by his ancestors as a clan whose mission it was to be mm. Ubuzolo Bendong. Mm. Mm. I, I think the direction this conversation has taken announces his presence and the, and the presence of or Koko no Mkulu that he is with. It's a, it's such a fascinating view on on the life and legacy of um, Steve Biko, Ubutolo Bendonga, and mm. just in in dialogue, three things come to mind that I'll just give mm. back to you to reflect on when <coughs> when you respond. The first thing for me when I was listening to you talk about Biko is that we think so much about him only through the political prism as mm. as just a political figure, mm. which is something that we sometimes do to black leaders. Mm. And your your appreciation of the wider nature of Biko, his family history, but also his, his own person, mm is actually something we often don't afford black leaders in, in our country. We, we mm. only look at their political contribution. Mm. And when I think of Biko, mm. I think of and I see a polymath. Yes. I think of someone mm. who was able to master the medical field. Um, before, he, uh, before he died, I visited the Biko Center, um, which everyone should really visit in Ginsburg. Mm. And uh, he was studying law. And mm. one of his law legal textbooks was there. And I was like, 
you finished your medical degree and then you decided to study law. Mm. So he obviously had this very wide polymathic intellect mm. and he was able to mobilize a political movement and then develop the philosophy of black consciousness. Mm. And then there was all these, there were all these actions that he took in his community of building clinics. Mm. And, and so when I just look at the gravity of his intellect, I see, I see someone who is able to integrate so many different fields and be one of the true polymaths mm. of his time, <coughs> all before 30, mm. I mean. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then what struck me also about your, your exploration into Biko's legacy was, it seems that democracy, ironically, depoliticized our society. Mm. So as we achieved one of our key political aims, one of the unintended consequences was this mass depoliticization, which mm. I'm feeling so much right now. Mm. Like I can just feel particularly the depoliticization of black South Africans. And mm. it feels like we're losing all the best parts of the political tradition we have inherited and, and we're abandoning the quest for, for racial justice, you know, outside of obviously our connectedness to other, you know, to wider humanity. Of course, that's important. But as mm. you say, mm. the struggle of black South Africans is, is a noble one. And it feels like in democracy, as time has moved on, we've become more interested in neoliberal self-advancement yes. and the wider politicization. Maybe black yeah. South Africans, maybe South Africa is one of the most politicized, politically conscious countries mm. at one point in our history. And how did we lose that? And it feels like the story of Biko is, is a story of the rise of that consciousness, but also right now it feels like the fall of that consciousness. Um, mm. I say to you mm. that to be Ubutsalobentong, mm. to be the sharp end of the stick mm. in anti-colonial and anti-apartheid struggle, mm. is a task that was given to his clan. Mm. But this is not the only clan, of course, that is given this task. So it's a task that is given to his clan. We have Walter Sisul, mm. Kamel. Hmm. You see, he too becomes loyal to the task of this clan mm. to be Ubuzolo Bendong. But back to Steve Biko, mm. I, I regard Steve Biko as an avatar. Mm. Uh, some will accuse me of engaging in an exercise in hyperbole. But I do regard Steve Biko as an arbiter. Someone who, by the divine, is put amongst us to alert us to that which is not good, that which needs to change about the human condition. To alert us to the need to act in pursuit of this goal to change the human condition for the better. So I, I, I regard him as an avatar. 
in that sense. One version of his biography is that he actually does not complete his medical studies. Mm. In fact, he, he fails, I think, in the third year, and he suffers academic exclusion, does not complete his mm. uh, medical uh, studies. Now, whether this version of his biography is correct or not, I don't know. Mm. But there, there is that mm. version of his biography. He then proceeds, I think he registers with UNISA, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to study law and politics, which are more <laughs> uh, attuned to his mission. Mm. Um, if, if we must look at his mission narrowly, yeah. you know. Because he is an avatar who is put amongst us to engage in the struggle for the betterment of the human condition. This may sound funny to some people. Medicine was nothing but a distraction. In fact, can even be said, and here I'm not arguing against people getting an education. Mm. Mm. His primary reason for being is to be this avatar put amongst us, to be with us in this struggle, to fight for the betterment of the human condition. And so if I am right in seeing him this way, as an avatar. He does not finish his medical studies because he does not have time, Kluby. He's going to die at 30, 31. He mm. does not have time. He has to fulfill his purpose and mission. He does not have time. And so he does. He, he cannot complete a task that takes him away from his primary purpose for being here. But as I say, I'm not saying people must not study. Mm. But I, I think this is one of the ways in which we must understand mm. Steve Biko. Mm. We must understand him in another way. Uh, to your point about how we, 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 we narrow the identity. Mm of political leaders in this country. But we do so with regard to their philosophical orientation. Mm. One of the things Ibiko calls for is the decolonization of the black mind, um, which is the same thing Ugoa Tiongo calls for, mm. decolonizing the mind. By the way, <laughs> you know, this project of decolonizing the mind, before I come back to the narrow point I want to make, mm. is about decolonizing the mind of the descendants of whiteness. It is about decolonizing the mind. So, so the, the first minds that must be decolonized are the minds, for instance, of the British the French, the Portuguese, Portuguese, the Spanish. Mm -hmm. 
before we talk about decolonizing the minds of those they colonize. Mm. Right now, to the extent that coloniality, despite the fact that colonialism is not in place, coloniality is firmly in place. The minds of the descendants of the Spanish colonizer, the descendants of the British colonizer, the minds of the French colonizer need to be decolonized. Or at least the project of decolonizing our minds must be in tandem with the project of decolonizing the descendants of the colonizers. Mm. But decolonizing the mind of those who are oppressed is not enough. Because the colonizer colonized the mind, the body, the spirit, our sense of time, our relationship with time, our relationship with nature. Therefore, to truly decolonize is to decolonize all that which was decolonized, which takes me back to the question I asked. Is black consciousness enough? No, it's not. We must return it, this drop, mm. to the ocean of consciousness. Because it is a consciousness about what it means to be human. Mm. And therefore, black consciousness on its own is a drop, which is part of this ocean of mm. consciousness, mm. must be taken back to this ocean. Mm. So that we become part of an ocean of consciousness through which we achieve some of the goals we must achieve mm. to reclaim the humanity of all, all of us, eight billion of us on this planet. Mm. Well, Gorgosh, shall we, shall we turn our attention to a prediction you made on this channel? Um, I don't know if it was the last or the, the conversation before be two this. Two or three before. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I'm saying two or three before, mm. because as Isangoma, I already know what you're going to say. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, there we go. Now I must change. <laughs> How can I ask questions when you already know the answer? That's just unfair. <laughs> um, and you you said that you, you predicted and, and you saw, or you were being shown various fires. And I mean, we've we've obviously lived through yes, a yes, terrible, a lot of fires. Yeah, yeah, many. Um, mm. Of course, the recent events in in Johannesburg and the fire there. Many people tweeted both of us to say from that conversation. Mm. You know, is this the manifestation mm. of that? Mm. So, can we return to to that um, moment yes. in our conversations, the history of our conversations, and yes. see how you interpret that? that question again. And, 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 and maybe I, I must express appreciation for, for what you do for me during these conversations. The, the very fact that it's not a Q&A session is it, it, something I appreciate. Mm. Um, the fact that it is a conversation is something I appreciate quite deeply. Mm. Mm. But there's something I appreciate even more deeply. During these conversations, I'm allowed to look at politics properly. Mm, mm, mm. In the sense that people believe there's politics here and spirituality there. Mm, mm. There's spirituality here and the economy there. Mm, 
the spirituality here and political economy there, the spirituality here and gender politics there. Mm. Whereas my teachers, by my teachers I'm talking about the ancestors, not just the ancestors of this country, mm. of this land, the, the ancestors of the Native American, the ancestors of the Native Australian or the Native New Zealander, mm. the ancestors of indigenous people in Latin America, the ancestors of indigenous people all over the world teach me many things, but mm. the one that is relevant to our conversation is that everything is connected. Everything. Everything is connected. You can't separate spirituality from political analysis. Mm. Mm. You can't separate political, I mean, spirituality from the economy. And therefore, it is precisely my spirituality that informs me, for instance, that capitalism is one of the most evil things the human mind has ever devised. And which therefore tells me that informed by that spiritual insight, part of the struggle of reclaiming our humanity must be the struggle against capitalism. It is my spirituality which informs me that the fire at 80 Albert Street happens mm. because our neo-apartheid state is a state that does not see the poor, the victims of inequality and all of that, as human. And this brings me to Paulo uh, Freire, he of uh, the pedagogy of the oppressed, who says to politicians, people are just objects. I add to that, that to the political and economic elites, people are just objects. And that is why our neo-apartheid government has no shame in imposing policies, economic and otherwise, on our people that it has already seen cause suffering instead of ameliorating their poor social and economic conditions. It is my spirituality that takes me there. But more importantly, it is what I'm taught by the ancestors of indigenous people all over the world, that everything is connected, that takes me there. When we talked about the fires, mm. At that time, I think we're talking about two fires. We're talking about the fire at Charlotte Macaque. Mm. Mm. And we're talking about the fire at a library mm. at the University of Cape Town. Yes. Yes. Now, yeah. I have argued in the past that there should be a, a moratorium on us naming things and institutions, mm. buildings, streets, and roads, and so on after struggle stalwarts. Mm. Because, because the spirit of Bigo is so dominant in this conversation mm. today, mm. there should be a moratorium against naming things after Bigo. 
Mandela, Sisulu, Albertina Sisulu, Charlotte Mateke, Dorothy Nyembe, Oar Tambo, and so on. Because in the choices we've made since 1994, we've mm. done nothing but dishonor their memory. Mm. Why name that hospital? Charlotte Matlack, when every day people go through an experience in that hospital and other public hospitals mm -hmm. that dishonor the memory of Charlotte Matlack. And I can say the same about many other institutions mm -hmm. that are named after struggle stalwarts. I'm reminded of that explosion and the <coughs> road crack on what was renamed Lillian Ngoi. Exactly. Street. Exactly. So literally, Lillian Goyi there turns in her grave. Look at this street, Lillian Goyi. Look at the CBD. Look at the inner city. Are these conditions under which human beings mm. in a country run by a government of people who fought a liberation struggle, are these the conditions under which they should be living? Mm. Are these the conditions they should be living? Those deemed by us not human because they are not South African citizens. And so literally, with that explosion, Lillian Goyi turns in her grave. Now, I say at the time when we talk about the fires, yeah. that there will be more fires. Mm. And there were. And we see them now. And there will be more fires. There is a more devastating fire coming than the fires we have seen so far. Because these fires are simply alerting us to the need to abandon the path we are on and move to a different path. A path that foregrounds the humanity of people. And this path we are on for instance, through our neoliberal pol uh, uh, policies, is not the path we should be on, mm. because it is a path that dehumanizes. It is not a path that prioritizes our humanity. Now, of course, many textbooks have been written. Many professors have emerged because of those textbooks. Many economists have emerged because of those textbooks which exist to defend, as I said, what is in essence the most evil thing or one of the most evil things the human mind has devised, capitalism. You have all manner of sophistry you will hear from the current finance minister and previous finance ministers, from mainstream economists, because they are disconnected from the pain and suffering of the human being we call South African, who is connected to the pain and suffering of the human being we call American, European, Chinese, Brazilian, and so on. They are disconnected to that which is not good about the human condition. So these fires are an opportunity for us to confront our reality when it comes to that which must change about the human condition. Mm.
if we don't abandon the path we are on, as I say, more fires are coming and a more devastating fire is coming. Now, there's an interesting contradiction at face value that is emerging. Mm. With the fires will come water. Okay. But the water will not douse the fires. So with mm. the fires will come storms at sea. Mm. With the fires will come floods. But the water will not douse the fire. Because both exist to alert us to the need to change the human condition mm. for the better by abandoning the path we are on. The southern hemisphere this summer is going to see flames, literally. The flames, of course, will coexist with the waters of the seas and the heavens, all of which come into being to alert us to the need to change our ways and to abandon the path we are on. And if we come back to what we're being alerted to in this country where, mm. by the way, the, the big fire I'm talking about is coming. You know, the, our new apartheid government destroys the soul of South Africans. That you had, oh, for days lying, <coughs> sleeping on the floor, hungry because they don't have money to go back home, mm. waiting to be paid, waiting for their Sasa grant. Yeah. Yeah. The Sasa grant being an indignity on its own. Mm. Mm. And on top of that indignity, the neo-apartheid government adds the indignity mm. of making them sleep on the floor, hungry for days, mm. because this neo-apartheid government does not care enough to make sure that they are paid. Mm. This neo-apartheid state destroys the spirit so we can write volumes critiquing yeah. our economic policies and, mm. and so on. Mm. It all boils down to one simple and painful fact. This neo-apartheid state destroys the spirit. Mm. So it is not just the bodies of black people. It is not just the fact that to this neo-apartheid state, black bodies do not matter. That mm. is the issue. Mm. The spirits of black people don't matter. Hmm. You know what's what's so profound about that for me? I think what has struck me in my other life at the SABC where I've been asked to interview so many senior politicians. I've spoken to lots of ministers and senior, especially ANC leaders, mm. is it just feels like the the penny hasn't dropped in terms of the hardships that people are going through. Mm. And I keep seeing this recurring combination of number one, denial, that the situation is actually as bad as it is for so many people. Mm. And 
Number two, complacency about what could have been done. Mm. And it just, it surprised me so much because of course, when you meet more and more people who are running the country, you get the interpersonal relationship mm. that maybe people don't see on the camera, but you ask questions about things that are going wrong and fires and mm. the cholera outbreak and the humanity of those crises and the humanity of the poverty in South Africa and the inequality mm. just isn't registering with our leaders for some reason. And that I think is the greatest indictment because they may re-win an election and, and mm. hang on to power, but mm. if you haven't delivered on the goal, then what use is the power? Well, the problem is bigger than the crisis we call the ANC. Mm. And, and, mm. and I deliberately say the crisis we call the ANC instead of the crisis in the ANC. Mm. Mm. Because the ANC has become one of the biggest crises facing South Africa today. That's why I talk about the crisis we call the ANC. Mm. But the crisis is, is bigger than that. Mm. Mm. We have a much more generalized political crisis in this, crisis, in this country. Yeah. Going back to Paula Freire again, mm. who, as I said, says to politicians, People are objects. Mm. And I say to political and economic elites, people are objects. Mm. To the ruling class, to the ruling establishment, which consists of the political and economic elites, mm. people are objects. And that is why they cannot connect to the pain and suffering of South Africans who are poor, of South Africans who are working class. Mm. They can't connect to that pain and suffering because people to them are objects. And of course, remember, when you have to confront this evil I call capitalism, remember capitalism has invested to create a matrix of consciousness that renders that which is false true and that which is true false. So it creates this matrix, this matrix being the world, being South Africa in this case, in which we suffer from an optical delusion of consciousness. <laughs> false consciousness, not a true consciousness. But this is buttressed by things like the education system, for instance. This is buttressed by things such as popular culture. This is buttressed by things such as the media. They are all part of manufacturing in a Chomskyan sense. Consent about the lie. That which is a lie is the truth, and that which is the truth is a lie. And this is one of the reasons we have this denial. Mm. It is shaped by this 
optical delusion of consciousness. Now, <clears throat> it is shaped by something else. The ANC is part of the liberation movement. So, so people tend to think that the ANC is the liberation movement. It is part of the liberation movement. Uh, to the extent that you can talk about the Black Consciousness Movement, the Pan-Africanist Movement, and others as the liberation movement. And so the ANC is but one component of the mm. liberation movement. But it is a component of the liberation movement that was highly infiltrated. There comes a point that there are too many in this liberation movement who work for ends other than to liberate our people because they are being handled by masters whose goal is to maintain apartheid colonialism. Many of them are in cabinet. Many of them are in parliament and our legislatures and our municipal councils. They cannot be sensitive to the needs of our interests when they were not in the struggle to fight for the liberation of our people, but were in the struggle as infiltrators. Some of them, sleepers, were able to infiltrate the highest echelons of ANC leadership structures. Some of them who did a much better job than Craig Williamson. That's another dynamic mm. which informs the lack of care, which informs mm. the denial. Mm. Then you have those, I forgive. Because the denial comes from a painful place, their own pain. Mm. Mm. It comes from their own trauma. When they look at themselves, as part of a project that is failing our people. Mm. They are haunted by trauma, mm. their own trauma. To the extent that we must talk about healing this country, part of that healing must be about healing the trauma of those in our government, of those in the ANC, mm. who are traumatized by finding themselves being part of a project that is at variance with what they thought they were fighting for mm. or they were about. Mm. So I am not going to demonize everyone in government. Yeah. I'm not going to demonize everyone uh, in the ANC because I do recognize the trauma of some in the ANC, the trauma of some um, in our government. Mm. And mm. to the extent that we must be compassionate, yeah. my compassion, your compassion, and the compassion of other South Africans must extend to them too. Mm. They need it. Mm. Mm. But it doesn't change the fact that objectively, the, the, the neo-apartheid government, as part of a neo-apartheid state, is a neo-apartheid government and therefore part of a neo-apartheid state that is objectively anti-black. 
I can even say a neo-apartheid state that hates black people. So those are the different dynamics yeah. which inform the denial we are talking about. Gogo, I guess there, there's so many different directions we could go with this conversation. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm also mindful of your time. We have the question of the public protector, which I know caused you some unease. Mm. Mm. Um, and her removal, we have the legacy of uh, Prince mm. Utelezi. Mm. Uh, we we can talk about those two. Uh, <laughs> okay. Okay. I, I, I have yeah. no problem. Okay, yeah. so let's let's leave it at those two then. Mm. Um, let's start with the removal of the public protector. My sense of unease mm. about the impeachment of uh, Busisiwe Mkweban mm. is not even about Busisiwe Mkweban. Sure. Uh, those who 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 believe. I'm the high priest of the radical economic transformation forces. <laughs> Will not believe this. Yeah. <laughs> yes. um, my my sense of unease predates mm. the Section 194 process. Sure, sure. In this way, after 1994, a certain dynamic develops, which has has made me uneasy. It is the dynamic of deifying the ANC leader as a god. Mm. And because the ANC leader is a god, our institutional architecture values or lack of thereof mm must be created in the image of this demigod. Mm. If we're lucky, it will be created in the, in, in, in the image of those things about the demigod that are good. And so to the extent that the demigod is Nelson Mandela, mm. our institutional architecture will be created in the image of those things that are good about the demigod Mandela. Or the demigod Mbegi, or the demigod Zuma, mm. and today the demigod Cyril Ramaphosa. Unfortunately, it has not always been the case since 1994 that this institutional architecture, its values, and so on, mm. are created in the image of that which is good about the demigod. Unfortunately, more often than not, it has been created in the image of that which is bad about the demigod. And one of the things that is bad that has happened is this. Mm. Whether you're talking about the NPA or any other institution, whether it's parliament and so on, there comes a time when these institutions must do nothing more than anticipate the wishes of the demigod. Mm. I'll give an example, the mm. NPA. Mm. The NPA goes through a period when it is captured through uh, what 
we call state capture, which sure. I, I don't have much time for for that yeah, discourse. We've, yeah, we, we've covered that to <coughs> yes. some extent as well. Yeah. Yes. So the NPA changes because state capture is normal. Mm. Because remember, uh, state capture only happened during the nine years yeah, of, of, uh, of course, yeah, of, of Zuma. Mm. There is no state capture now. There mm. is no state capture before mm. Zuma, mm. Uh, which of course is false mm. consciousness, mm. as I said. And the only state capture that happened in that period was the Zuma version of state capture. Exactly. There was no other state capture either. Exactly. But let's narrow mm. it down. Yeah, yeah. So the NPA changes because state capture is no more. Mm. As we praise it for how it has changed, <laughs> we fail to see that it is changing to do what it has always done, to anticipate the wishes mm. of the demigod. Mm. We reach this point with her, partly because we have a majority party that must anticipate the wishes of the demigod. The demigod wants her out, and the wishes of the demigod must be fulfilled. Now, unfortunately, what this does, that we can't focus as we should on the merits of the matter, mm. whether this was a good public protector or not. Mm. We can't have that proper discussion as a result. All we have is a religious quarrel mm. between those who are fanatical in, the, in their support of the demigod mm. and those who are fanatical in their opposition to the demigod. Mm. Mm. And what gets sure. lost is the opportunity to have a proper discussion mm. about whether this individual, Busisiwe Mkweban, was a good public protector or not. And a deeper discussion about the office of the public protector mm. and about other chapter nine institutions mm. and our democratic institutions in general. Yeah. And indeed the process of how we remove the chapter nine heads. Yes. And I feel like this was such an important moment for our constitution and our democracy because this was the first time that that process has been embarked upon but we lost the opportunity to have a wider debate about what a genuinely yes. fair process looks like in our haste and our fanaticism about the particular case and the particular process. And I'm not convinced that we've... No, you're right. Yeah, we, we, yeah. We, we, we've not done that. Yeah. Um, for the sake of those who see nothing but R.E.T. in mm, us, mm, mm, mm. we can do this critique as long as we don't fall into the trap of idealizing Busisiwam Kweba. No, absolutely. We must not do that. Let's even, let's even concede for the purposes of argument mm. that everything about that was written about Mkwebane in court judgments was true. Yes. Um, I still think this was a moment that potentially transcended Busisiwam Kwebane's yes. tenure as public protector and spoke to wider constitutional questions about how parliament holds people accountable. Mm. And, and on that, what made me uneasy, I was uneasy for two reasons. Mm. And it was around this time that, that we reconnected for this conversation. The first reason I was uneasy was because of 
the urgency of the alliance between the ANC and the DA on this mm. on this question, mm. which goes back to another prediction that you made on this mm. channel, which has got in, in 2019. Yeah, mm. hundreds of thousands of views mm. via clips on various social media channels about the potential alliance, whether explicit or implicit between. Mm. And I had never seen such uh, unity across those two poles mm. of our political landscape. Mm. And the second for me was obviously juxtaposing this process of accountability and its swiftness and its uh, haste with mm. the lack of accountability <coughs> in every other process in parliament, which involves mm. usually an ANC politician. And, mm. and it demonstrated that accountability is about political will. And if there's will, then <laughs> it really doesn't matter yes, what's happening. Yeah, right. If there's a deadline, there's yeah. a deadline and we meet the deadline. Absolutely. Let alone holding corrupt politicians mm. who have just as much, if not more, to answer for. Because getting mm. the law wrong is bad and no public mm. protector should ever get the mm. law wrong. But Mkwebane wasn't accused of state capture or, or theft mm. of, of public resources. So what and, about... And, and yeah. remember, uh, mm. Mm. Jacob Zuma doesn't go to jail mm. for the things mm. that are alleged against him, corruption. Absolutely. That's the irony. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. He spends time in jail not for corruption. Mm. 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 You know, he, he spends time for jail for another thing, mm. you know. And, mm. and, and for me, the, the, the problem is this. Mm. I, there was a time in the early 2000s, I would bemoan the fact that ours is a political reality of the single party dominance of the ANC. Yeah. Now, remember the single party dominance of the ANC and the single party dominance of the, a of the DA as the official position, have a symbiotic relationship, which I think we don't have to go to, uh, yeah. go into today. Yeah. What, what I bemoan mm. is the impact of this political reality of the single party dominance yeah. of the ANC on our institutions, mm. particularly the credibility and integrity yeah. of our institutions. Yeah. So, so, so what this single party dominance of the ANC does mm. is to impose what we call institutional uncertainty on our democracy. By that I mean, I, as a result of this single party dominance of the ANC and how it has used and abused its position in the political landscape, in part, because it worships mm. the demigod known to us as the ANC president. Mm. I can no longer trust that these institutions have integrity. Yeah. And because I am not certain that these institutions have integrity, a process must, may, may be flawless. A process such as the 194 mm, mm, uh, mm. Uh, parliamentary process may have been flawless. But I struggle to deem it flawless mm. because I'm uncertain 
of the integrity of our democratic institutions, mm -hmm. including our parliament. Coco, I think uh, technology and, and uh, our camera batteries have determined that this is where we're going to have to leave our conversation. There's still so much to discuss. Maybe in our next conversation, we can reflect on yes. various other questions. <clears throat> But uh, I think we were taken by the Biko conversation. The Biko, yeah, yes. and this will always be known yes. as as the Biko the Biko discussion. So, so we we have to mm. stop because in this course we say Itaisha the culture ninja. In this case, Itaisha the culture technology. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Or we can just say Itaisha the Let's put it that way. Uh, uh, the Thank you so much for joining us. You're most welcome. Like, share, comment down below as always. And keep it locked on SMWX. The Seaswim Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye, aye, aye.